Welcome to the John Mark Homer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. All right, let's, uh, to start off, let's see what all the fuss is about. Matthew chapter 5, take a look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not use violence to resist evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Yesterday morning, a car barreling into a crowd at a white supremacist rally in Virginia. One dead, 19 wounded, the soul of our nation in crisis. Friday, the day before that, Ezekiel Elliott suspended from six NFL games for domestic abuse. Thursday, the day before that, Pyongyang and our president going at it from a golf course in New Jersey, quote, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which the world has never seen. Wednesday, the day before that, a man in a BMW running down six French soldiers. He's later shot in a car chase. Story after story. For all of our talk, in particular in a city like Portland, about how evolved and how enlightened we are in the modern Western world, the world that we call home is still, to this day, chock full of violence. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. What exactly does he have to say about this phenomenon? Well, let's work through his teaching line by line. Again, 38. You have heard that it was said, and then a quote, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, this is a quote of a command that we read not once or twice, but three times in the Torah. Exodus 21 If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. There it is. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then he goes on. Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Deuteronomy 19. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Good evening. Welcome to Bridgetown Church. We're just so happy you're here. Just here to give you a little bit of a shot in the arm before your week ahead. Now, at first glance, this command, let's be honest, it sounds barbaric, right? And cruel and pre-modern and what in the world were people thinking? But think about it. To this day, if somebody hits you, what's the natural thing to do? Hit them back, right? And is it to get even, or is it to kind of one-up them a little bit? Be honest. It's, yeah, both, exactly, right? It's to go, there's a little bit of John Wick in all of us, right? Like you just, you just want to go off on people. And if you don't believe me, have two boys, age 11 and 8. Um, trust me, it's true. I see it on a daily basis. 
Um, our, the bent of the human condition is not toward justice in a court of law, but is to revenge and even to violence. You give me a black eye, I give you two. You burn down my barn, I kill your family. You fly an airplane into my building, I invade your country. So the heart behind this command here is, whoa, whoa. Okay, let's slow down the train. Go to a court of law. Notice this command is for a judge in a court. It's not for the victim of a crime. And the judge in the court is to see that the punishment, that justice is done for starters. Make sure there's no you know, bribery or injustice based on ethnicity or socioeconomic status. No, he is to see that justice is done and that the punishment is fit to the crime. Now, in legal jargon, this is called lex talionis or the law of retaliation. And to this day, it is a key facet of our justice system. In two millennia BC or whenever this was first around, it was way ahead of its time progressive and humane. But as we're about to read, you'll see this in a minute, Jesus takes this command and he sets it aside. Basically, he says, okay, that was then and this is now. And all the other examples, we're on number five of six examples in Matthew chapter five of the, kind, the way of Jesus in action. In all of the other examples, Jesus takes a command and he kind of takes it a step further. But in this one, there's a twist, there's a surprise. He sets the whole thing aside. Basically says, you know, this has a place in the legal system, sure, but it no longer has a place in the life of my followers. My followers are to be a city on a hill, to be the light to the world, to put on display a whole new way to be human. Now, why would Jesus set this command aside after so long? Well, all sorts of reasons. Here's the one I think at the top of the list. Because at best, all it could do was keep violence in check, rein it in. If that, as a general rule, violence begets more violence. It feeds on its own energy. This is biblical theology, it's psychology and sociology, and it's also common sense. As Mark Twain put it in Huckleberry Finn, you ready for this? What's a feud, Buck? Why, where was you raised, Huck? Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before. Tell me about it. Well, says Buck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another. Then the cousins chip in. By and by, everybody's killed off and there ain't no more feud, but it's kind of slow and takes a long time. <laughs> there it is, the human condition. Theologians and ethicists and sociologists talk about the myth of redemptive violence, which is a myth. It is an so it's a lie, it's not true, but it is a kind of basis of modern society, and the myth is that the best way to fight violence is with more violence. But in reality, at best, all violence can do is keep itself in check, and there's a time for that, but that's, that's the best case scenario. All too often, it escalates, it feeds on its own energy, and it makes a bad problem worse. So what does Jesus have in mind? 39. But I tell you, remember it's a little verbal formula from a first century rabbi, here's what you think a command means, here's what it actually means. Do not, in the NIV, it's do not resist an evil person. Now, this line is very slippery to translate from Greek into English, and it's easy to misread, so please pay close attention for a minute. Let me just nerd out on you. 
So a few hundred years ago, the King James translated the Greek here, do not resist. Depending on how cynical you are, that was potentially because of King James and his desire to subjugate people under the British monarchy, depending on how cynical you are. Either way, most scholars all agree that's a really lousy translation, but unfortunately, it has stuck around. And the reason it's unfortunate is because it makes it sound like Jesus is saying, hey, just roll over and play dead. But that's not what he's saying, as we'll see in just a minute. That doesn't even make sense because Jesus goes on to resist evil right and left. But the means by which he resists evil is nonviolent. Now, the word that is translated in the NIV as resist is antestani. Can you say that? Right. One lexicon defines it this way, to engage in revengeful or violent retaliation. Here's a few other ways to translate it into English. Do not take revenge on, or do not retaliate revengefully using violence, or the word evil should be there, evil means. Don't react violently against the one who is evil. Or I think the most simple and the most helpful, don't use violence to resist evil. That's from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. I think that does a great job of capturing the heart behind antestani. And then the next word is tapanara, and it means the evil person, or even more simply, just the evil. So this is about how to interact with evil and evil people in the world. Most first century Jews would have immediately thought of the Romans. Most of us today immediately think of ISIS or North Korea or a white supremacist or closer to home, a nasty coworker or a mean neighbor. How do we deal with people like that? Well, there's a negative and a positive answer to that question. The negative is not with violence. Otherwise, all you're doing is perpetuating the cycle of violence. Do not use violence to resist evil, end quote. The positive answer that we're about to read in just a minute is get creative. Look for an alternative nonviolent solution to social injustice. Tolstoy called this breaking the chain of evil. I love that language. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, living under Nazi Germany, fascinating character we'll talk more about next week, said this, evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. John Howard Yoner, the ethicist from Duke University, said this, what is wrong with the world is most fundamentally that people respond to evil with evil. The iron necessity of retaliation, that's his language for lex talionis, or eye for an eye, it intends to preserve human society from chaos, and it does to a degree. But in reality, it guarantees at best a continuing chain of evil. At worst, it escalates like pouring oil on fire. Non-retaliation is the only way to break the chain of causation. Now, this teaching from Jesus of Nazareth is picked up on throughout the New Testament. Here's just two examples that I love. Here's Paul in his letter to the church in Rome, chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. That's language like right out of next week's teaching from Jesus. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. I don't have time to talk about it. That's, that's an idiom. Just pause on that one. Do not, you're like, yes, finally, we get a little violence thrown in. No, sorry. Do, and here's his summary. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Say that line out loud with me. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's another one from Peter in his letter in the New Testament. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Wow, let that sink in. To this you were called. What did Jesus say? Come, if anybody wants to be my apprentice, come, take up your what? Cross and follow me. You were called to this because Christ suffered for you. Notice, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We'll talk more about that later. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not tweet back. He did not retaliate. I'm sorry. When he suffered, he, let's bring it back down to home, all right? When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, absorbing it so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Are you getting the picture? Over and over, the teachers of the way of Jesus claim that the best way to fight violence is not with more violence. The best way to fight evil or cruelty or shame or criticism or a mean comment is not with more of the same, but is rather with suffering, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped enemy love, where you absorb that evil into your own body, and in doing so, the hope is that you stop evil dead in its tracks, and you overcome evil, not with evil, but with more good. Next, Jesus lays out four examples of how to do this. Now, all four are right out of his first century world. So we have to translate and transpose a little bit to the 21st century world. Let's take them one at a time. First, the right cheek. Take a look at the second half of 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also, uh, Matt, would you come back up here just for a minute? Matt is a dear friend. He's in my home community. Um, we work out together twice a week. Uh, he looks like that. I look like this. Proof that God is not always just. Um, but so let's, let's take this in hand. So let's pretend he's a bad guy and I'm a good guy, all right, because we're American. We like to think like that. So in this analogy, the idea is that you slap me on the right cheek. Now, assuming that Matt, my assailant, is right-handed, that means... Like, don't actually, there. That means it's a backhanded slap. So what Jesus has in mind here is not a punch, it's not UFC, but it's a backhanded slap. Now, this, Jesus is living in an honor-shame society. This was the most egregious insult to the dignity of a person there was. There were literally laws against this. This was what a master would do to a slave or the head of a household to a woman or to a child. It was a superior in that culture to an inferior, right? So here's Jesus. So Matt comes at you, backhanded slap. 
You have two options. Option A is flight. You just, you just roll over, play dead, play the victim, take it. Option B is what? I fight back and then I lose, but I fight back and I punch him or I don't slap him back. I would like, you know, one up you or whatever. And then you would beat me to a pulp. Well, in the hypothetical scenario where you're a bad guy, all right? And not a friend. So that's option B is fight. What if there's an option C? And this is what Jesus has. What if there's a creative kind of third way forward? And what Jesus has in mind is you turn to him the other cheek. Now that word turn is literally you turn and face. So now I look at Matt as an equal, not as a slave to a master or an inferior to a superior, but I look at him as an equal. Now, if Matt wants to hit me again, what does he have to do? He has to punch me, and I might die. Look at this man. He's quite strong. I might die. But in doing so, not only do I reclaim my dignity, but another thing might happen. He might not punch me. Instead, my bold, courageous act might expose his sense of superiority and might bring about a change in his heart or a change in mine. Thanks, buddy. See you at the gym tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's example. Thank you, Matt. That's example number one. Secondly, the shirt. Take a look at 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, Hand over your coat as well. Okay, now we're in a courtroom, and you're in the middle of a lawsuit, and your adversary, most likely in this hypothetical scenario, is a Roman. There were all sorts of problems and issues in the first century with Roman, um, kind of the oppressor, like stealing land right and left from the Jewish population. And let's say in this, your adversary, Roman or not, he wants to sue you, and he wants to take everything. He literally wants to take the shirt off your back. Now, in the first century, a Jewish man wore two garments, an inner garment, which the NIV here translates shirt, but don't think t-shirt, think like first century Jew, right? Which unless if you were really poor, you would have more than one shirt, more than one inner garment. And then you had an outer garment, which the NIV here translates coat, which was more like a robe that you would wear over your inner garment. And then, listen, you would use as your blanket at night. For this reason, it was illegal under Jewish law because of more than one command in the Torah and because of just basic human rights to take another person's coat or he or she would freeze to death. So here's the scenario. You're in the courtroom. Your adversary is after all you have. What do you do? Option A, flight. You just like give in. You give him the shirt off your back. You walk away bitter, angry, upset. He's the oppressor. You're the oppressed. Option B is what? You fight, you lawyer up, you get you know, this heavyweight on your side or whatever, you go after his shirt and you go after his wife's thing and like you just go for it. Jesus is saying, right. what, if, what if, slow down for a minute, what if there's an option C? What if there's a creative third way forward? And actually what Jesus does here is quite funny. It's hard to tell where like Jesus is being funny or not. A lot of it's lost in translation. There's a good chance that he's being funny here. And the odds are what Jesus is saying is, right, here's an idea. Just strip naked right in the middle of the courtroom. Okay, this is like before Calvin Klein and like you have your shirt. That's all you have, all right? Strip naked, hand over your shirt and hand over your coat, stand there naked in the middle of a courtroom, conservative, religious, Jewish context, or whatever, give it all over of your own free will and your own volition, recapture your dignity as a human being, not as the oppressed, but as a human being with power over your body and over and give over. And, you know, he might just walk out and you might be left in the courtroom naked. That might happen. Or... You might expose, no pun intended, you might expose his or her greed and ruthlessness 
and oppression and evil, and you might, in an honor-shame society, you might call out your adversary right in public and in doing so, break the chain of evil. Example number three, the extra mile. Take a look at 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Again, um, what comes to mind is a Roman military officer. We'll talk more about this next week. First century Israel was under Roman occupation. There were Roman military soldiers all over the place. And under Roman law, a Roman legionnaire could compel you to carry a load for up to one mile. And you had no choice. It actually happens later in Matthew 26 with Simon of Cyrene, who's made to carry Jesus' cross. Can you imagine the humiliation of that? The resentment deep in the marrow of your bones, the hate, the anger. You're out running errands, or you're on a trip, or you're on a date with your wife, or whatever. All a Roman soldier has to do is say, hey, you, I'm tired. Carry my pack for me. A whole mile later, then you're finally done. So let's say that happens, and this is right out of Jesus' everyday life. What do you do? Option A, um, flight. You just you pick up the, ca- the pack, you carry it, you glare at him, silent, seething, bitterness eating you up from the inside. Option B, you fight back. You join the Sicaria. That was a, a group of Jewish kind of extremists in the day. Um, Sicaria is what that movie last year was named after. It literally means the dagger men. And they would carry a dagger inside their coat. And they would sneak up to a Roman soldier in a crowd, slit his throat, and then melt back into the crowd. Like that's another option. Like you just pull out your knife and you fight. But what if there's an option C? What if there's a third creative way forward? What if instead you say, sure, let me carry your pack. You get to mile marker one and you keep going. Of your own free will, your own volition, you recapture your dignity, no longer as the oppressed. Now you are in charge of your body and you go the extra mile. How sad is it this has become a cliche or a platitude? This is provocative and subversive idea. And in doing so, what if you start a conversation? What if you ask him, what's it like to be a thousand miles away from home? Do you have a wife back home? Do you have a family? What does it feel like to be here where nobody wants you here? You humanize your enemy. In doing so, you humanize yourself. Now, he might just oppress you and move on. Or it might start to break the chain of evil. Last analogy is about money. 42, give to the one who asks you, And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All four examples deal with injustice, but now there is a shift from the oppressor to the oppressed. Now you come across um, a beggar on the street or your landlord and a tenant who can't make rent or whatever the analogy is. What do you do? Option A, you give them whatever they ask for, even if it's not the best thing for them or for you. Option B, you say, no way, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, this is the land of opportunity, and you continue the growing gap between rich and poor. But by now, you all know that with Jesus, there's an option C, there's a third creative way forward. What if instead, here's Jesus' idea, you give to them, but you give um, out of relationship, not just generosity, as great as that is, but more than that, justice, and in doing so, you break the chain of evil. Can we just pause for a minute and say, how brilliant and beautiful is this? This is why I keep coming back to Jesus and his way. I find it so compelling. This is just not what you hear on the street, even in our world. Now, some people call what Jesus is teaching here pacifism. I have no problem with that term or that label for Jesus or for myself. 
but I avoid it for a number of reasons. First, it's a loaded term that is an emotional trigger for a lot of people. So a lot of people hear that and it's like this just knee-jerk reaction of anger or fear or whatever. Secondly, the term pacifism has all sorts of political connotations that have nothing to do with Jesus' teaching. So this teaching in front of you, it's not for the Roman Empire and all of its legions. Um, It's for followers of Jesus. And we can guess at what Jesus would say to the Roman Empire, but we don't have that on paper, right? This is for you and for me and our apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. But when you hear that word pacifism, for a lot of people, that is a political word that has to do with the size of the U.S. military or our budget or this or that war. And often, whatever you think about that, I have my opinions, but often it comes out of this kind of naive 1960s make love, not war, humanistic view of mankind that does not seriously wrestle with evil and evil people in the human condition and is frankly really easy to believe when you live in the safety and security of America or in a city like Portland. But the main problem lasts with this term of pacifism, and once again, I have no problem with it, but I avoid it, is that for a lot of people, when they hear that, it means passivism as in just roll over and take it like a doormat. Now that's not what the word means. The etymology of the word pacifism means to pacify. It means that you reject the either or option of fight or flight and you look for an option C, a creative alternative to violence. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight writes this, pacifism isn't quietism or withdrawal or inactivity and it isn't simple submission. Pacifism's root is connected to the peacemaking beatitude, rooted in love and expressed when the follower of Jesus actively seeks peace. Pacifism isn't a lack of interest or non-involvement, but the hard work of seeking peace. And I love this. Pacifism is nonviolent resistance, not non-resistance. Passivism is not what Jesus is teaching here at all. Not one of these four examples are passive. They all call for the apprentice of Jesus to do something creative, surprising, wise, intelligent, bold, risky to the threat of his own life on behalf of others. They are creative ways to respond to social injustice, but without using violence. That's why they are examples. I mean, they are commands, but you have to get to the heart behind the commands and think of all four as examples. Don't think, well, you know, if a Roman soldier were to ask me to carry his pack, I would say yes. You have to like extrapolate out from that what God's heart is for you in our nation, in our world, in your workplace, on your street, when you run into evil or to evil people. These examples are to spark what New Testament scholar Richard Hayes from Duke University, what he calls moral imagination to get you thinking about, again, creative alternative solutions that are not violent to evil. Our imaginations are captive to violence because of the world we call home, the human conditions, the stories we tell, the way the history books are written, the way the new is set up. Our imaginations are captive. We just can't break out of this either or fight or flight kind of paradigm. Jesus' teaching here and in other places, and even more so his life, which is so compelling, and its fulcrum point in the cross, breaks open a whole new horizon of possibilities of how to deal with evil and evil people in the world. For that reason, I think a better term is nonviolence, um, that's my shorthand. That, of course, again, doesn't come close because it's all in the negative. That's like saying a health, calling a healthy marriage non-adultery or something like that. 
And as we'll see next week, Jesus has way more in mind than don't kill people. He actually wants to take it to a whole other level. He wants you to love your enemy. And if you don't like that idea, do not listen to Jesus of Nazareth because he has a lot to say about it. So I think a better term is nonviolence or what the ethicist John Howard Yoder calls nonviolent direct action, what Scott McKnight and a number of other theologians call nonviolent resistance, whatever you want to call it. All that to say, what we're getting at here is that violence is not the way of Jesus. Fighting evil with more evil is not the way of Jesus. Now, followers of Jesus um, disagree on the implications of this. Are there situations where violence is unavoidable? Are there times and places where it is the lesser of evils? It's still evil, but it's the lesser of evils. And while for the first 400 years of church history, I think we'll talk about this a little bit next week, there was agreement basically across the board that all violence was out of bounds for apprenticeship to Jesus. Ever since the fourth century, Constantine and a theologian by the name of Augustine, there has been a long-running debate. And the reality is smart people disagree. But here's what you need to get. What all followers of Jesus agree on, at least all of those that take his teaching seriously, is that to follow Jesus means you reject the either-or flight-or-fight option, and you look for an option, so you look for a creative, nonviolent solution to put a stop to evil. That's like the baseline for apprenticeship to Jesus. The last century, as we all know, was the most violent century in human history. Over 187 million people killed. Now, of course, that does not factor in per capita. There's a whole rabbit hole there. But still, due in part to technology, there has been so much violence in recent history. Yet, some of the most compelling stories in the last century were of people who put Jesus' teaching here in front of you in Matthew 5 into action. Of course, at the top of the list is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement, which finally did what the Civil War never could, even 100 years later. It's easy to forget that Dr. King was a preacher, that his I Have a Dream speech was a sermon, come on, that he based his entire nonviolent movement on the Sermon on the Mount, in particular Matthew chapter 5 and everything that he picked up when he was in seminary. Dr. King and many others like him shocked America into action, not through violence, but through nonviolence, through absorbing the evil of German shepherds and stonings and abuse and systemic racism and nights in jail and police beatings and even torture, and in his case and many others, death into their own body. And in doing so, they exposed the systemic racism of our country for just how ghastly it was, and in doing so, changed the world. Now, we have a long ways to go. We all know that but we have come so far. Then, of course, you have Gandhi, who never became a follower of Jesus, in part because he was so turned off by his experience of racist Christians in India, but he loved the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know that? A little backstory you may or may not know. He was introduced to Matthew chapter 5 when he was in South Africa as a lawyer before his movement. He made friends with a Quaker, which is um, an Anabaptist stream of the church that makes the Sermon on the Mount front and center and therefore makes nonviolence front and center to discipleship to Jesus. And this uh, Anabaptist, Mr. Coates was his name, gave him a copy of The Kingdom of God is Within You by Leo Tolstoy, another follower of Jesus and activist for nonviolence. For Tolstoy, if you've ever read his work, the center of the gospel was the kingdom of God. The center of the kingdom of God was the Sermon on the Mount. And for Tolstoy, the center of the Sermon on the 
the Mount was the six examples in Matthew chapter five, we're on number five of six, three of which are all about nonviolence. And Gandhi was so moved by Jesus in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount and Tolstoy's reading of it that he went home and based his movement on Jesus' teachings. Now, those are the ones that get all of the airplay, that and Mandela in South Africa, who went into prison a violent young insurgent and came out Madiba, a follower of Jesus shaped by the Sermon on the Mount, overthrew apartheid without a single bullet. But there are so many more. Walter Wink um, Professor has this fascinating little short read, you can read it in about 30 or 40 minutes, called Jesus and Nonviolence, where he does a little exegesis of Matthew 5 here, and then he just tells stories about nonviolent revolutions, mostly in Eastern Europe and South America over the last century. Here's just one little paragraph summary. In 1989-1990 alone, 14 nations in one year underwent nonviolent revolutions, all of them successful except China, all of them nonviolent except Romania. These revolutions involved 1.7 billion people. If we total all the nonviolent movements of the 20th century, the figure comes to 3.4 billion people, and again, most were successful. And almost every single example was inspired by followers of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth right here in front of you. Some of the best moments, not only in church history, but in human history, have been when followers of Jesus took his teaching here seriously. Then again, what we all have to admit is that some of the worst moments in church history and in human history have been when followers of Jesus found a way to explain this away, or write Jesus off, or say, well, yeah, that was for then, but not for now. Of course, you have the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the Civil War, Let's get a little closer to home, World War I. We forget that World War I was essentially a Christian civil war with each nation holding a prayer meeting to Jesus on either side of no man's land and then running across the trench to kill brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus. Wow. Somewhere along the way, we lost the plot line. Philip Jenkins, in one of the most depressing books I've ever read, makes the case that World War I was a civil war between Christian nations, and it carved up the Middle East in such a way that it created all of the problems and the issues that we have right now down to ISIS and radical Islamic terrorism. That's what happens when Christians don't take the way of Jesus seriously. Even World War II, I mean, come on, if there was ever a war to justify war, if there was ever a clear line of demarcation between the good guys and the bad guys, it's World War II. But even there, it's so easy to forget, it's so easy to rewrite history and to make we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. It's so easy to forget that Germany thought of itself as a, quote, Christian nation. That was language used by all sorts of Germans right in the middle of World War II. It was the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation, home of Martin Luther, home of the Lutheran Church. It was the Bible Belt of Europe. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, most of you know that name, his book, The Cost of Discipleship, one of the most widely read books in church history. His other book, Life Together. Anybody read that? One of the best books out there on community. I'm guessing a number of you have read it. Did you know that was written in his experiment when he left the German church because of theological liberalism, which created um, a way to baptize military violence in spite of what Jesus had said. He left the church over. He refused to fight in the army, refused to fight in World War II for or against the German army until much later. And he started his own seminary. Of his 150 students, of which that book, Life Together, is based upon, 90 of them left his seminary in the middle of the term to go fight for the German army in World War II, all of them evangelical Christians, end quote. 
One of the best like comebacks to the idea of nonviolence is, well, what about Hitler? What about World War II? We'd all be speaking German or this, that, or the other. What if Christians in America had refused to fight? That is a legitimate question. That's a legitimate, yeah, I don't know. But here's a counter question. What if Christians in Germany had refused to fight for Hitler? What would have happened then? I don't know. But I think it's really interesting. My point is high highs, low lows in church history and in human history so much depends on whether or not we take Jesus' teaching here seriously. Now, um, this raises all sorts of questions, am I right? How many of you have like a running list? Like you're freaking out right now. You're like, da, 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 right? Here's just my short list of questions. What about Hitler? It's just the beginning. What about self-defense? What if your life is at stake? Is there a difference between violence and force? What about killing to save another person's life, not your own? What about protecting your family from a home intruder in the middle of life? Who would not do that? Um, This teaching is for followers of Jesus. What does it say? Does it say anything or not about the government? What about serving in the military? What if you serve in the military, but you're not in a role where you are killing? If you're a medic or a doctor or a psychologist, what about serving on the police force? Is that like a whole other category? What about serving in political office? Does that mean that's off limits? What about voting? What about just war theory? Isn't that a thing? What about church history? What about division in the church? What about violence in the Old Testament? Just a few questions come up when you start to take Jesus' teaching seriously. Now, we'll get into some of those questions in the next couple of weeks, and the plan is to do a really in-depth series of Q&As on our podcast with a number of leading experts on the subject. So just write down your questions, and then next week we'll have an email or something for you to send a nice email in with no rant. Like, save your rant, just write it tonight, and then delete it, okay? Um, and just save, save your questions, seriously, because this, on a serious note, this raises all sorts of questions. We'll answer as many as we can, but not all, partially because of time, partially because we don't have all of the answers, and followers of Jesus don't all agree, okay? And we're not an encyclopedia. We don't know exactly in every single scenario. For now, if you want to go deeper, recommended reading is Fight, as we said by Preston Sprinkle. Join that book club. I think they're calling it Fight Club now, um, very Portland. <laughs> Feel free to join that or pick it up um, out at the info desk. That said, for tonight. A few pastoral words for our church. I've been praying about this for just quite a while now. First, I want to call out the emotions in the room. For some of you, this is just like an abstract concept. You're like, ah, okay, interesting. Never really thought about it. For others of you, this is an emotional conversation. It is an emotional trigger. For some people, it triggers fear. And that makes sense. I mean, every time we read the news, we read about North Korea, the threat of nuclear war, a terrorist attack. I was just in London, and I was with my 11-year-old boy, and we were walking over the bridge where just a few months ago people were run down by a delivery van. I mean, it's just crazy, the world that we live in. So there's a lot of fear. I made a passing comment recently about nonviolence to somebody that I love and respect, and she said back to me, what, you want ISIS to overrun our country, rape all of our women, and impose Sharia law? I thought, no, I don't want that. And where did that come from? And you think that's going to happen just because I decide not to kill people because I follow Jesus. You think that, like, my, and my point is not to mock her. My point is to say, for a lot of people, there's this knee-jerk, like, there's the emotion of fear. And, and it makes sense. The world is a bit scary right now. For other people, it triggers anger. How dare you even insinuate this idea? Are you ungrateful, liberal? Don't you know? You, people died so that you could stand up on a stage and say, don't do that. Or like... 
And I get it. And people get really angry really fast. Think back to Jesus' teachings on anger and put that into practice. For other people, it triggers guilt and shame. Maybe you're here tonight, you're thinking, I kill people in the military. And I thought it was kind of a virtue, but now I don't know. And like you feel that at a soul level. For a ton of people, it's relational. I had a lot of conversations after this morning. My dad's in the military. My mom's in the military. My brother's in the military. My best friends or whatever. And like we just feel the relational pressure. This conversation will not go well at Thanksgiving or whatever. Trust me, I know from experience, it does not. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge the at a serious level, I just want to acknowledge the wide range of emotions in the room and say this is a safe place. Not to yell and rant and scream at each other and go off at your Bridgetown community or on Facebook. Please don't. But this is a safe place to process the teachings of Jesus and all of our feelings about the teachings of Jesus together as family. Secondly, I want to call you to go on the journey. In my experience, most followers of Jesus in the evangelical tradition, which a lot of us grew in, a ton of you did not grow up in the church at all, or you grew up in a very different church tradition, or you grew up um, in a church tradition of color, which is way ahead as a general rule of the more white church in America on this subject matter. But for those of you that grew up in the evangelical tradition, a lot of us have never really seriously thought about what Jesus and the Bible have to say about violence. A lot of people just assume, as I did for years, that violence was the best way to deal with evil in the world. So just by way of autobiography, I, I did not grow up, like some of you know my family, I did not grow up in a make love, not war family. Let me just say, it was a lot of other things. It was not that. Rush Limbaugh was on 24-7. Not a value judgment, just you know, to help you kind of get the picture. My grandfather was a B-24 bomber pilot in World War II in the South Pacific and a hero in the family. Love my grandfather, miss him. My cousin, who lived next door and was four years older than me, went to the Air Force Academy, flew F-16s, graduated top of his class, still to this day is very high up, and the Air Force was another family hero. I grew up playing G.I. Joe, anybody? Toys were just way better in the 80s. Some of you missed it, and I'm sorry. Like, it was just so much better. Army men, everything was a gun. I still remember watching Desert Storm like it was a movie on TV and like sitting on the couch with popcorn. I mean, to this day, to a fall, I love violent war movies. Like, I have a mandate with Neil Wednesday night to see Dunkirk and 70 millimeter at Hollywood Theater. So, all, like, I, and my, my point is just to like give you a little background. And for years, this is where some of you are at now. I just assumed that serving in the military or killing in the name of democracy or whatever was okay for a follower of Jesus. I never really thought about it. And uh, in fact, before I felt a call to teach the Bible, my original career path was the military. I wanted to follow in my cousin's footsteps. I was working on my application for the Air Force Academy. It wasn't until about 10 years ago that I started to seriously wrestle with the teachings of Jesus started to really take the Sermon on the Mount seriously as a manifesto for my life in the kingdom of God, started to read widely outside of my tradition. And I spent years, I'm not, no exaggeration, reading and rethinking and researching. And my view on followers of Jesus and violence changed 180 degrees. I have come to believe that violence, all violence, in particular, killing is incompatible with following Jesus of Nazareth. And I have come to believe that based on the teachings of Jesus, the life example set by Jesus, and the writings of the New Testament, as well as the Old. But I did not get there overnight. It was a journey that for me was years long. 
All I want to do tonight is call you to go on that journey. I'm not asking you to sit through one teaching and agree with everything I say. And if you disagree, there's the door, right? That's not, nobody is saying that here, all right? I do believe this, as does our leadership. But this is a safe place. We're just asking you, if you follow Jesus, to take the time to hear Jesus out. Don't go on Facebook or email me all hostile in the morning or like just breathe, suspend judgment, at least for a few weeks, set aside what you know or what you think you know, and really take seriously Matthew chapter 5, Romans 12, Romans 13, 1 Peter, like all sorts of passages in the New Testament. Be willing to let Jesus and the writers of the Bible challenge your assumptions, your opinion, your bias, and then make a decision later. Now, you might come to the same conclusion as me. You might not. You might not land where I land. Okay, all I'm asking tonight is that you go on the journey. And finally, and I think most importantly, I want to call us to unity. I have been dreading this teaching for weeks now, not because I don't love what Jesus has to say. I do. But because our church is at a really healthy beautiful place right now. I love you guys so much. I love what God is doing. I just a sense of the spirit of God in our church. So many people living in community for the first time, rediscovering the way of Jesus as a way of life. Do you see how many people got baptized last week? I forget the number, but it was on the middle of August. I mean, it was hot outside, but still, in the middle of <laughs> August. It was beautiful. I'm loving our leadership team right now. I mean, just we're so great. We have money. It's a miracle. Like, I'm just so grateful for the season that we're in. And listen, the enemy would love to use this, a teaching of Jesus, or my reading, our reading of the teaching of Jesus, of all things to divide us. That is not God's heart. It's not our heart. Even if a few weeks from now or a few months from now, we have to agree to disagree, if not on the heart posture, then on some of the implications. Okay, but let's not let this divide us as a family, please, let's fight for unity, but in a nonviolent way. <laughs> let's stand and pray together. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for this episode goes to Kendall from Nashville, Tennessee, Jonathan from Nanterre, France, Victor from Sanford, Florida, Aaron from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Hannah from Warren, Michigan. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.